Well, listen, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. And if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers as they're coming down the aisle, and they'll get one into your hands. You're going to need a Bible, as with every weekend here in our church, and this weekend is no exception, as I'm going to be covering a number of verses, many of which are from the book of 1 John. You'll find 1 John towards the end of the Bible, just before Jude and Revelation. If you get to those books, you've gone just a little bit too far, but 1 John chapter 4. And uh, some of our verses are going to come from that little book, and some of them are going to come from elsewhere in the Bible, and I will put those on the screen for you, some of them. But before we get to all that, I want to start with a little, wait for it here, wait for it. I want to start with a little Jeopardy. Little Jeopardy. Exactly what you expected on Easter morning, isn't it? It was all I could do to get the graphics department to be willing to put that kind of a font on the screen. They're like, oh, do you really have to do that? Just just for a few minutes, just for a few minutes. They were gracious. Jeopardy crowd participation style, all right? You're at the kiosk here. And I'm going to start with, uh, let's go religion for 200. Already? Religion for 200. Here's the answer. Though all the world hasn't heard of him, he's still the most well-known name in history. Who is? Jesus. Look at that. Look at that. Spot on. All right. Here's religion for 400. The calendar followed by the vast majority of the world is based on his birth. Who is? Ah, now you're catching on. And for all the marbles, he's the focal point of the number one best-selling book of all time. Who is? Jesus. Yeah. Standard Sunday school answer, but it's true. And it's kind of crazy, isn't it? You think about those facts just for a few minutes. I mean, crazy that the world marks time based on his life and His name is so well known, but so few in the world know anything about him. So few. So few know the real significance of his life, not to mention his death and resurrection. So few could really answer the question, who is Jesus? Not to mention what he's done. And I'm here to tell you this morning it's important. Vitally important. Because when you get right down to it, Jesus is the most important person in the world who did the most important thing and requires the most important response. True, in all cases. The most important person who did the most important thing and requires the most important response. And so let's start with this. Who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Some say... Maybe you've even said this. Maybe you've heard people say this. Some say he's just a religious leader. Another religious leader. One among many, as it were. Others say, no, 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 no. He's more than that. Uh, I think that he's a a prophet. A spiritual prophet. Somebody that we should listen to. Uh, Somebody that, you know, we should take into account as a well-meaning advisor for life. Kind of like a life coach. Some people say that. Skeptics say no way to any of it. They would say he was a delusional disruptor, 
an over-the-top fanatic, a major inconvenience. Certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees considered him those things back in his day. A few would call him a blatant liar, though out of ignorance they would do so. And, and then there's even a tiny few in our day and age, a heretical few, I would say, who call him transgender. Sick and wrong. Sick and wrong. But those who knew him best, those who were closest to him, those who wrote the Bible said that he's the son of God. That's what they said. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. In fact, that was their response to the Jeopardy question that Jesus posed. It, it didn't originate, you know, like, I don't know, a couple decades ago or whatever. Jesus is the original Jeopardy, okay? He said, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Matthew 16 starts in verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, you know, the fiery preacher who was beheaded just a little bit earlier. That's who some people say you are, Jesus. And others say, Elijah. Others say that you're Elijah. You know, the, the truth speaker and the miracle worker from the Old Testament come back to life. And others, they say, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All dead people who have come back to life. That's what some people are saying about you, Jesus. He said to them, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And the question still rings, still echoes, still applies. And the most important question that you could answer this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Simon Peter replied, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, here it is, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, God the Father. In other words, you're right, Peter. You're spot on. Jackpot. I am the son of the living God. Those who knew him best, the apostles, said so and recorded it in the scriptures for it for us, revealed to them by God the Father. And don't forget about those who didn't know him, those who didn't follow him, those who didn't even believe in him, like the centurion at the cross who said, he must be the Son of God. Even unbelievers in Jesus' day confessed who he was when they saw him for who he was. And then there were the demons from time to time that he confronted. They too called him the son of God. Over and over again, the Bible says that Jesus is the son of God. Now, if that's a little bit fuzzy in your mind and heart, it's exactly what that means. I'll give you another phrase. It means that he's God in the flesh. Son of God means he's God in the flesh. In the first century Jewish culture, if you were to say that someone was the son of their father, 
you would basically be saying that they had the exact attributes of their dad. They, they were cut from the same cloth, if you will. They were just like them. They had the same nature, the same essence. So too Jesus, son of God. The same essence, the same attributes, the same nature. Only in this case, he took on flesh, an additional characteristic, so that he could live among us and he could live like us and be known by us. How good is that? Despite what some people say centuries later, Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh. Second, he's the promised deliverer. The Son of God and the promised deliverer. It's just like Peter said, as we saw there in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. The Christ meaning Messiah, the deliverer, the one that God promised through the Old Testament prophets promised to come and promised to save, promised and prophesied to deliver his people from their sins. Jesus is called the promised deliverer. And he fits, he fits all the promises. He fits all the prophecies. Even the apostles themselves in the New Testament made the connection for us so that we wouldn't miss it. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, okay, I hear you, I hear you. But how do we know that the Bible is true? I mean, come on, Pastor, you're saying all these things based on the Bible, but how do we know that, that the Bible is right? How do we know that, that the apostles and the prophets got it right when they put pen to paper and preserved it for us? Well, fulfilled prophecies would be one reason. And a really big reason at that. Conservatively speaking, think of it this way. Conservatively speaking, the Old Testament contains some 65 different prophecies about Jesus. From different writers at different periods of time throughout the course of ancient history. 65 different prophecies about Jesus. And they were all written somewhere between 400 and 1400 years before he ever showed up prophecies. That's better than the National Enquirer. <laughs> and I'm not talking about like veiled allusions or, you know, vague references to the promised deliverer. Not at all. I mean, there are hundreds of those. Not that they're any less important. Not that they don't speak volumes in and of themselves, but and they're not necessarily the 65 explicit ones, but there are hundreds others of those kinds of expressions and prophecies there. I'm talking about the explicit ones about a Messiah, a Christ, a deliverer, clearly fulfilled by Jesus. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the prophecies found in the Bible. There are hundreds of other prophecies about cities and nations and kings and individuals and events that have come true. We can trust this book because so many prophecies have already been fulfilled. Not to mention, and that alone would be reason enough to believe what it says. But on top of that, there's the fact that it's historically accurate, the Bible. 
It's supported by archaeology. Every time I turn around, I'll find an article like they found something that corroborates the Bible. Hello? You'd think they get tired of getting like shamed for being wrong. It's supported by archaeology and last but not least, it's written by eyewitnesses. The Bible is written by eyewitnesses. Some of whom died for what they wrote without denying one single word. The point being, when Jesus, or when it says that Jesus is the Son of God and the promised deliverer, we can trust what it says. We can trust it. And the same is true of this third descriptor. He's the Savior of the world. Not only is he the Son of God and the promised deliverer, but he's the Savior of the world. Like it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. Check it out there in your own Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. It says, We have seen and testify. This is the Apostle John writing, referring to he and the other apostles when he says we, as well as he and the early church. We have seen and testify that the Father, that's God the Father, has sent his Son, here it is, to be the Savior of the world. We testify, we bear witness to the fact that God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it, to save it. The world's already condemned. Those apart from Christ are already condemned. Those who don't know Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, haven't repented to Jesus, are already condemned. And that might be you this morning. The Bible says that we are born into a state of condemnation. Condemned to suffer for our sin and sinfulness for all eternity. The Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. Meaning spiritual death in the throes of hell. And Jesus came to save us from that. He came to be the Savior of the world. He came to save those who believe that, who not only believe the condemnation that we are born into in our sinfulness, in our sin nature, not to mention all of the wrong sins we've done. They not only believe that, but they believe that Jesus is their Savior. He came to be the Savior of the world for those who believe in Him. That's the first category about the most important person in the world? Who do you say that he is? Who do you say? Second is what Jesus did. Who Jesus is, got that, now what Jesus did. In other words, he came to save us, but how exactly? Well, I'll start with the fact that after living a perfect life, and dying on the cross, he did so for our sins. After living a perfect life and satisfying all of God's righteous requirements in his life, he died for our sins. He died a terrible, gruesome death, bludgeoned, bloodied, and pierced six hours one Friday on a cross. On a cross. 
If you've ever wondered why you see people wearing crosses around or why the cross is such a prominent uh, thing in, in churches, at least churches that are Bible-believing and Bible-preaching or used to be even, if you've ever wondered why, it's not because or just because Jesus died on a cross. Thousands of people in that particular day died on crosses. The Romans were brutal in that respect. But rather, the cross is so important because Jesus died for our sins on the thing. He died for our sins. That's what makes it different. Something that no other man could ever do. He died for our sins, your sins, and my sins. He died for the things that we have done wrong, and he's died for the things that we should have done right but didn't. He died for the sins of commission that we did actively. He died for the sins of omission that we did passively. He died for them all. And he died for the things that we will do wrong and won't do right. Past, present, and future, he died for all of our sins. Think of it. He died for every last one of the wrong things that you've ever done and ever will done until he takes you to glory if you believe in him. He died for the sin that you walked in here with. He died for the sin in your heart right now that you have yet to confess to him. Over and over again, in multiple different ways, the Bible says that Christ died for our sins. Five of the most precious words in all the Bible. Christ died for our sins. Or he bore our sins in his body on the tree, it says, the cross. Suffering the penalty we deserve to suffer. And in doing so, he paid our debt. He paid our debt. And not just a little bit, not just some of it, not just most of it, but he paid it all. He paid our debt completely. Like it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, God made us alive, speaking to those who believe in Jesus, he says, God made us alive having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sins. God made us alive having forgiven us our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He made us alive by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he paid all that we owe God. He paid it. He paid for our countless sins against God. He paid for all that we owe God for our countless sins against God. In other words, he satisfied our debt and he canceled it. He annulled it. He made it void. He tore it up and he threw it away. And every other metaphor that you can possibly think of to describe a debt being completely canceled. It would be like those of you who are in, in business or you, you, maybe you're in a managerial situation or maybe you're a cashier somewhere and you're like, yeah, you don't need to pay for that. Go ahead. I've got it. Paid in full. 
It's what he did for us on the cross. He paid our debt, which means, praise God, we're free and clear. We're free and clear. Free at last, free at last. Praise God Almighty, free at last. That is, we are free from the bondage of sin and free from the consequences of our sin. It's why we sing songs like, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Which brings us to Easter. Jesus not only died for our sins and paid our debt, but he rose again. He rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead. The Apostle Paul couldn't be more explicit. For I delivered to you, he said, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, just like the Bible said he was going to, and the Bible says that he did in the Gospels. Paul writing after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. At least Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. He says, I, I, I passed it on to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, here it is, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve apostles. The Bible says it. Jesus did it. And the apostle Paul affirms it here. He rose again. The very reason that we celebrate Easter. The very reason that it's Resurrection Sunday to us. Resurrection Sunday. I mean, listen, Easter is, I don't want mean to rain on your parade. Well, maybe a little bit I do. Not about eggs, not about the Easter bunny. Celebrate them all you want. We did so yesterday, laid them out in the yard for the little ones to find. And, and then I, I guess, you know, one of them was really special. It had like $10 in it, so that one was particularly hidden. Celebrate that all you want, but do not, do not let it overshadow or take precedence or eliminate the real reason for the day, which is that Jesus rose again. There we go. Amen. Amen. So catch this. He rose again and he did so for two main reasons. Number one, to defeat death. Couldn't hold him down. And number two, to raise us. How good is that? To defeat death and to raise us. Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. No longer has any effect on him. No power over him. He defeated it once and for all. He rose again to defeat death. And because it has no more dominion over him and he will never die again, that means he's alive. That's why we say he is risen instead of he has risen. All verb tenses make all the difference in the world. They did in high school and they do now. He is risen. Somebody mentioned to me that they went and had a cake made and, for Easter. And they had them and put on the cake, you know, fancy lettering and everything. Jesus is risen. And they said the gal behind the counter was like, don't you mean was risen? 
Oh, what a gospel moment, huh? <laughs> oh, Lord, give me one of those, please, please. She's like, no, no. He is risen, meaning he's still alive. Maybe we should say he's, he is still risen. Maybe that would make it ever so clear. He did so to defeat death and second, to raise us. He rose again to raise us. Not that we won't die, don't get me wrong here, but that we won't stay dead. We won't stay that way. Because the Bible says, he who raised the Lord Jesus, referring to God the Father, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. When he returns, like we will die, yes, we, but we won't stay that way because in Christ, united with Christ, connected to Jesus, in a relationship with Jesus, death no longer has a hold on us either. Death no longer has dominion over us either. You want to talk about good news? He is risen, and because he is risen, we are risen. And it's already true. Spiritually, the Bible says we are already raised from the dead. We are risen now, and someday, after we die and Jesus returns, we are going to receive a new glorified body to be reunited with our soul that went to be with him the moment we breathed our last sometime in the past, and we will be raised with Christ literally too. Spiritual and physical. That's right. Jesus died for our sins. He paid our debt, and he rose again to raise us, which leads us to what Jesus offers. What Jesus offers. I mean, the things that he did, who he is, amazing in and of themselves. But what he offers is literally out of this world. Just as amazing as the other things. And, and, and the things that he offers, do not miss this, the things that he offers not only determine the course and the quality of our life now, but they determine our entire eternity. Entire eternity. Starting with forgiveness. Jesus offers forgiveness. On this one, take a look at 1 John chapter 1, maybe a few pages before where you are there in chapter 4. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. You're going to want to keep your finger on the text now. It says, if we say we have no sin, if we say that we have no sin, we haven't done anything wrong, or the things that we've done wrong aren't particularly bad. Not, not, not that big of a deal. We say things like that. We deceive ourselves. And if that's not bad enough, the truth is not in us. Loved one, the first step in receiving the forgiveness Jesus offers is admitting your sin and sinfulness. Easier said than done for sure, but vital. The first step in receiving the forgiveness that Jesus offers is admitting your sin and sinfulness. If you don't, you're just deceiving yourself. If you don't think it's a big deal, you're just deceiving yourself. 
On the other hand, verse 9, if we confess our sins, that is, agree with God, own our sins, acknowledge our sins, ask forgiveness for our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if we come clean before God, he'll wash us clean. If we come clean to God, he won't hold our sin against us. That's what being forgiven means. It's no longer having our sin and sinfulness held against us. No, no longer having a, a debt hanging over our heads. No longer having any consequences. If we come clean to God, he won't require payment for our sin. He'll wash us white as snow from the inside out. And then he ends where he started in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Bad enough that we deceive ourselves and that we are liars. But we make him a liar and his word is not in us. His truth is not in us. We not only deceive ourselves if we say we haven't sinned, we lie ourselves, but we also accuse God of lying because all have sinned, the Bible said, and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of God's standard of righteousness. Jesus offers forgiveness, but you have to confess to get it, to receive it. You have to admit it. You have to want it. You have to know you need it and can't escape the consequences. Second, he offers life, not just forgiveness, but life. Life to the full and life forever, like Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life, eternal life, and have it abundantly, or to the full. I came that they might have eternal life and have it full, have it to the full, have it full of purpose and have it full of blessing, have it full of joy, have it full of peace, have it full of Jesus himself. Jesus offers that kind of life, full and eternal, starting the moment, the moment that you believe and repent. And yet so many people don't want that life because they think they have it already. They think they're living the life. And by the world's standards, maybe they are. But by God's standard, they couldn't be any further from the fullness of life that he offers. They're like little kids and those who don't think they need the life that he offers or think that they're already living the life. They're like little kids who are satisfied with mud pies in the street when elaborate sandcastles at the seashore are awaiting them. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. They're like miners of old who are content with fool's gold when the real thing is staring them in the face. They're like fishermen who are content with oysters when they could have pearls, including the pearl, the pearl of greatest price, life in Christ. So how about it? How about an honest assessment of your heart and soul right now? Are you content with lesser things to the exclusion of greater things these days? 
Are you content with earthly things instead of eternal things? Earthly things when the eternal things await? Are you content with a meager life when a full one is fully available for free? Jesus still offers. He still offers forgiveness, life, and third here, salvation. He still offers salvation. Salvation from the consequences of your sin. The eternal consequences, don't miss this, the eternal consequences of God's wrath because of your sin. True, God is perfectly loving and God is perfectly just. And because of his perfect justice, he cannot and will not tolerate sin. This is his world. We're living in it, not the other way around. We didn't create him. He created us. And he offers us salvation from his wrath, his holy wrath toward your unholy sin, his holy wrath toward your unholy rebellion, his holy wrath toward your unholy rejection. Oh, you might not, you know, actively in your mind say, I don't care about you, God. I don't even believe in you or anything of the rest like that. Maybe your rejection and your rebellion is passive to the core. Maybe you're just like, I'm all about these other things and I don't even think about God. It's still rebellion. It's still rejection by default. Or maybe you are active in it. Either way, the good news is that Jesus offers salvation from the consequences of it. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, just a few verses later. 1 John 2, 2. He, referring to Jesus, He is the propitiation for our sins. I bet you haven't used that word this week. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, John says, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is a big word that means the appeasement of God's wrath. Satisfaction of God's wrath. And so just substitute that phrase in for the word propitiation. He, Jesus, is the appeasement of God's wrath for our sins. Why? Because Jesus bore the full brunt of God's wrath on the cross. And in so doing, offers us salvation from that wrath. We don't have to bear any of it. Not one shred, not one iota, not one minuscule piece. When you give your life to Christ, the bad things that happen to you are in no way, shape, or form a result of God's wrath towards you. Maybe consequences that he would bring in your life to correct you, to refine you, to sanctify you. But none of it is a result of God's wrath towards you because Jesus took it all on himself. He bore our sins in his body to take the wrath of holy God in our place. Man, if that doesn't grip you, I got nothing else. It's like Paul says in Romans 5, 9, speaking to believers. Since there, he's explicit. 
Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, that is, declared righteous by the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus on our behalf. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. His righteous anger toward our unrighteous sin. Jesus offers salvation from that, together with forgiveness in life. How good is that? Talk about a perfect trifecta. Forgiveness, life, and salvation. But here's the thing. You have to receive them. They're not automatically yours just because they're offered. Which brings us to the last category, and that's what Jesus requires. What Jesus requires. The blessings he offers don't apply to us just because he died and rose again. He requires faith on our part. To start with, faith. Faith. Meaning belief and trust. Two sides of the same coin. Biblical faith is, is believing in who Jesus is and what he did. And it's trusting in him to apply it to your life. The Bible tells us that the demons, the demons believe they believe in who Jesus is. Some of them even called him the Son of God, as I mentioned. They believe that what he did is, is forgiveness offering and, and salvation uh, gaining and all of that. They believe that, but they certainly don't trust him to apply it to their lives because they aren't about to repent of their fallenness. Biblical faith is believing and trusting That he'll apply the things that he offers now and forever to us. Jesus requires faith in his grace. Faith. Faith in the forgiveness he offers and the life he gives and the salvation he grants. It's a requirement. Second is repentance. Jesus requires repentance. Faith and repentance. That is, repentance for your sin and sinfulness. Repent, to repent is a word that means to turn from and turn to. In this case, we turn from our sin, from our rebellion, from our rejection, passive or active or anything else, and we turn to Jesus, to his righteousness. And Jesus requires that in order for us to receive forgiveness and life and salvation. You have to ask God to forgive you. That's repentance. Repentance for ignoring him. Repentance for doing what's wrong instead of right. Repentance for living your way. You have to ask him to forgive you and stop doing what's wrong. Forgive you and commit to do what's right. Forgive you and commit to follow Jesus instead of yourself or whatever guru you resonate with these days. He requires repentance. And last but not least, he requires obedience. Jesus requires faith, repentance, and obedience. Sometimes the Bible even refers to it as the obedience of faith. Uh, that's part of the obedience. But then there's also obedience in living for him, as I've mentioned up teen times already. Look at verses 
3 through 6 there in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. That is, we know we've been saved if we keep his commandments. We, we know that we've received his salvation and life and forgiveness if we keep his commandments, if we are obedient, if we live for him. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Love for God and love for others. Sacrificial love. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There, there is no such thing as being saved, no such thing as being forgiven, no such thing as having life to the full and life forever if you believe in your head, but you don't live it in your life. There is no such thing in the Bible. Which I know is a particularly heavy message on Easter. Like Jesus didn't die in your place so that you could live like the devil and still go to heaven. Jesus didn't die for your sins so that you could keep doing them without a care in the world. He didn't rise again so that you could ignore him all but two or three days of the year. He didn't save you to live a life separate from his body, the church. He saved you to be all in. He saved us to live for him, to glorify him in the things that we say and do and think. And, and when we fail, we confess again. We trust him to for, forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we get up and we take another step for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then another and then another. He saved us to obey. Don't get me wrong, he didn't save us to, to, to earn our salvation by our obedience. He saved us to show our salvation. He didn't save us to pay him back. You can't pay him back. He saved us so that we would give him our all. Not to pay him back, but to give him our all. Faith Repentance and obedience are what Jesus requires to receive what he offers because of what he did. And if you feel as though the Lord has been speaking to you in these last few minutes, if you want to be saved, if you're ready to repent of your sin, you bow with me and pray with me right now. Let's bow our heads, shall we? In the quietness of your heart, right where you sit, just start by admitting your sin and sinfulness. Something as simple as, God, I admit it. 
Start there. God, I admit that I've sinned and I'm sinful. I know it and I own it. You tell him. And then confess your sin. And confess your belief in Jesus. Confess, God, I believe. God, I believe. I believe that Jesus is your son and my savior. You tell him, quietness of your heart. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he paid my debt. I believe that he rose again for my life. If you want to be saved, you tell him from your heart. The eloquence of your words don't matter. It's the heart behind them. Saying this prayer without heart will do you no good. God, I believe. And then express your repentance to him. God, I'm sorry for my sin. And I'm done with it. God, I'm sorry for my sin and I want to be done with it. Oh, help me. Please forgive me and help me to live your way from now on. I want to follow you. I repent. And last, God, I receive. I receive the salvation and life you so freely offer. Oh, Lord, I want it. I receive Jesus into my life to be my Lord and Savior from now on. God, I admit, I believe, I repent, and I receive.